Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Our adventure with Second Chronicles continues this week with chapters 17 through 20. This is going to cover the reign of Jehoshaphat. Um, it actually runs into the first verse of chapter 21, but we're going to cover the whole reign here. This is the most complex narrative that is contained in the book of Second Chronicles. It actually happens in two parts. Um, he, the first part in chapter 17 through chapter 20, verse 34, Jehoshaphat is going to be a good king. He's going to be like Asa. They're going to approach the Solomonic ideal for um, a royal over God's people. But in chapter 20, verse 35 through 21, 1, we're going to find out that his reign ends in ruin. He can't hold it together and be consistent for the entirety of his life. When we pick up with his story as him coming into reign here, he reverses his father's mistakes almost immediately. He removes the high places. This is one of the things that the other kings have not done. Even when a king is faithful, he's allowed the high places, the places for pagan worship on the mountains, to remain so that he's not forcing the people to worship as he does. He's giving them religious freedom, but it means that the whole country is not being faithful to God, and so they cannot all enjoy the blessings and the benefits of that faithfulness. As long as those high places remained, there was always the possibility of returning to their idolatry. The high places were not left as a reminder of their past, for which they should feel guilty and a reminder to be faithful, they actually remained as a temptation to return to their wickedness. So we have to be very careful about what we choose to keep in our life and what we need to completely eradicate. Sometimes things can help us be faithful, remind us of who we were that we don't want to be any longer. Other times it can be an open door to go back to who we were. Jehoshaphat, as a faithful leader of the people, um, has the people's honor. They honor him. The divine ideal feels very near if all of Israel has been reduced to all of Judah. So it's not the full unified people of God, but at least here it's portrayed that all of Judah is attempting to be faithful. Jehoshaphat goes on an education campaign. He doesn't just call the people to be faithful. He's going to teach them how to be faithful. This is one of the things that can happen in, in churches and in the Christian faith is we want to rail against people's unfaithfulness and say we should be more faithful, but we don't engage in the study and the wrestling to figure out what that looks like. What does it look like to live as a faithful Christian? I think it's one of the responsibilities of pastors and of the discipleship programs that churches enact is we wrestle with this. We may not all always agree on exactly what it ought to look like, but we ought to be able to agree on the fact that we should be, and we should be doing all we can to try to be faithful. The peacefulness that they experience because of their faithfulness allows Jehoshaphat time 
and the resources, because he's not having to pay for war, to fortify the land against attack. So peace is a a good season to be in because it helps you prepare and prevent future downfall. In chapter 18, we find a story that correlates to one we also found in 1 Kings chapter 22. The chronicler, the author of the books of Chronicles, places it at a different point on the timeline and gives it a different meaning. So Jehoshaphat enters a marriage alliance with King Ahab of Israel. In other words, he marries one of King Ahab's daughters, um, and he gets an invitation to go to war with the the nation of Israel, the other half of God's people. Jehoshaphat, however, says they ought to ask God first. Ahab calls all the all the prophets. Four hundred prophets predict victory. Um, some do so very, very creatively. Um, Zedekiah was one that caught my attention in verse 10 with his horns, um, using it to predict what he thinks will happen. Micaiah, however, is the lone dissenter, the one prophet who says victory is not what's going to happen. Now, we remember from the story in First Kings, as here, that he first agrees. Uh, yeah, sure, do this thing. You'll be victorious. But it's very obvious he's being sarcastic, either in tone of voice, facial expression, or body language. Micaiah, however, in the, in, by the chronicler's account, says that the other prophets are not being false prophets. They are prophesying what they are hearing from God. It's just that God is allowing them to hear that because God wants Ahab to go into battle so that he will be killed in battle. It's a very interesting take on why the prophets are prophesying something that's not actually going to come to pass. Also, in this version, we get a little more information. In the king's version, um, Ahab um, disguises himself by pretending to be a common soldier, yet still gets killed. Here, he's going to still disguise himself, but he's going to encourage Jehoshaphat to wear the royal robes. So you go out looking like a king. I'm going to go out looking like a common soldier. What he's doing is really setting his son-in-law up to be killed. The opposing force has been told the priority is to kill the king of Israel. So they're going to be looking for anybody who looks like the leader of this force. And who cares if they mistake king of Judah for king of Israel? Just kill all the kings on the other side and we win. So he really is um, using his son-in-law to his benefit and is willing to sacrifice him. Ahab does um, dress as a common soldier, and yet he is struck by a random era. Um, they don't know that he's the king, but they shoot him and he dies at sunset, propped up in his chariot. It's an interesting picture we get here from the author that as the sun sets on this battle scene, the sun also sets on King Ahab's life and reign. Moving into chapter 19, we see that Jehoshaphat is confronted by Jehu, who is the son of the seer or prophet Hanani, Um, Hanani was the one who confronted King Asa, Jehoshaphat's father. Um, So interesting that Hanani confronted Asa, and now his son Jehu is going to confront Jehoshaphat. So Hanani's family 
coming through in Jehu is not deterred by the fact that the king reacted negatively. They still are going to speak truth to power. They're still going to prophesy what they hear. They're still going to tell the king what they're hearing from God. And so what Jehu tells him is that your alliance and going into battle with King Ahab was a mistake. It's an error that you should absolutely not repeat. It's not going to be the end of your kingdom because of it, but you need to be careful. Jehoshaphat repents. He does the exact opposite of what his father did. His father dug in his heels and refused to be repentant like I'm the king, who are you? Jehoshaphat, on the other hand, is able to hear um, confrontation. He's able to hear rebuke. And so he decides to learn from his mistakes and to learn from the mistakes of his father. This is a real key to good leadership and to maturing spiritually is to be able to learn from the things we do wrong and to learn from what other people have done wrong and not repeat them. He creates even further religious reform there in the country. He gathers the people. He solidifies them under the rule of God. He establishes justice, and he links all of that to being what God is instructing them to do and how God will bless them. In chapter 20, we have another story of five movements that share how these religious reforms are, in fact, going to bring them blessing. We first have it introduced. They call on God for help in verses 5 through 12. The prophecy comes in verses 13 through 19. The battle comes in verses 20 through 23. And then the triumph in verses 24 through 30. It's interesting that the battle is the very shortest section of this story. The emphasis is on God. Um, they realize their need for God. They call on God. God responds through the prophecy. God helps them win the battle and they triumph because of God. So the story is really, really God centered. So war is coming. People are coming against them. They call on God. They have an assembly. They cry out to God for help. And God responds through the prophet Jahaziel, um, who is a Levite, a priest, part of the priestly tribe. This is not who are the traditional prophets. Prophets are usually called out of other tribes. Levites function as priests who serve in the temple and serve the religious system. Prophets tend to be from other tribes or other families who um, speak truth to power and try to bring correction. Uh, the response to God's message is very interesting to me. Some of them fall on their face in humility and prayer. Um, others stand and praise God loudly. So there are different reactions. These reactions here happen together and at the same time in verses 18 through 20. When we experience the presence of God, different personalities at different points in our life react very differently to feeling God's presence and feeling like God has spoken to us. Some of us need to do so exuberantly. Some of us do so quietly. Some of us need to do so with a physical movement, stretching out, out extending our hands, bowing our heads. None of those are wrong responses if they are legitimate responses that we do out of who we've been created to be, this is why it's important in worship that it's okay to sit quietly. It's also okay to clap your hands or tap your feet. It's okay to raise your hands. It's okay to come forward and pray at the altar. It's okay to stay in your seat. We just need to make it open so that people can respond authentically to what they are experiencing in the presence of God.
It's going to turn out that the Jewish, the people of Judah don't even have to fight. God's going to bring victory without them even having to battle for it. Their enemies are going to destroy one another. It takes them three days to collect all the booty, all the bounty that comes from this. And then they worship and thank God. They do not forget God when they prosper and when they come out victorious. It's one of the great downfalls of the human race is that when things are going well for us, we tend to forget God. It's only when we've run out of our ability to do that we make room for God to do and that we turn to God. Now we get a summary of Jehoshaphat's reign. We review it. Um, 35 years old, when he comes into power, he reigns for 25 years. Verse 33 of chapter 20 says that the high places were not removed. But if you remember back at the beginning of his story in chapter 17, verse 6, it says they were removed. Biblical scholars are divided on exactly why and what this means. It could have been a copying error. Um, as someone copies, they're just remembering that every king, even the faithful ones, didn't remove the high places. It could be a false attribution to it, or it could be that they were rebuilt, that there were even remnants of the people who continued to go back to the ruins of the high places and worship, and over time, they rebuilt them. We don't know for sure. We do have this verse here in verse 33. So it's interesting to me that the summary of Jehoshaphat's reign comes here at the high point after God has given them victory. This is not the end of his life and the end of his reign. I believe the chronicler is saying to us, this is the spiritual death of Jehoshaphat. This is as good as it gets. It's downhill from here. Because with verse 35, chapter 20, 35 through chapter 32, verse 23, we enter a new section to the book of Chronicles. And from this point on, Jehoshaphat's reign is going to be in decline, but all of the reigns of kings are going to be downhill from here. The kings are not entirely faithful. Only God is faithful from here forward. There are brief intermittent um, times of hope. Hope breaks through with a king who tries to do something better. There's a little blip, a, a little rise in morality and religious faithfulness. But overall, it's a downhill journey. The decline of Judah that actually began with the reign of Rehoboam, who took over immediately after Solomon, just continues. It reminds me very much of the decline that happened under the leadership of the judges. Throughout the whole book of Judges, the trajectory is downhill. Even when we had a good judge, even when we had times they were trying to do better, Overall, it's a decline, and that's what happens here from the high point of King David and Solomon. It tends to be a decline, but from this turning point in Jehoshaphat's reign, it becomes a quick and steep decline. The lesson I believe we can learn is that neither judge nor king can ensure right behavior. Only the Holy Spirit of God can help us live lives of true and consistent faithfulness. We need God living in us through the Holy Spirit, not just among us, so that we call on God when we need an answer or when we think we need help, but living in us, walking through life with us every moment of every day. We see that Jehoshaphat is going to enter another alliance 
with disobedient Israel. He did not learn his lesson from the rebuke he received from Jehu over his alliance with Ahab, Ahaziah's father, and he's going to be called wicked. Ahaziah is wicked, this alliance is wicked, and it's going to create a wicked legacy for Jehoshaphat because he does so. Um, I don't understand why he was so able to learn from some of his mistakes and the mistakes of his father and is not able to see this one as a mistake. But sometimes we are blinded in the moment and very wise people with histories of making good decisions will make a bad decision. At the very beginning, the very first verse of chapter 21, we record the death of Jehoshaphat and the end of his time as the leader of the people of Judah. It's a very brief mention. It ends in disgrace. He um, dies with seven sons, and his son Jehoram is crowned king. So that takes us through chapters 17 through 20, the reign of Jehoshaphat, one of the mostly bright moments in the history of the nation of Judah.